in 2021, it is our hope to go to Takana, Guatemala, and plant a church there that will, within 10 years, send missionaries, uh, international missionaries, uh, around the world. And uh, the figure I've got in mind now is uh, that while we have generally usually taken our uh, students, high school and uh, senior and freshman and college students from Beach Haven to go, I want you to go. I, I want a hundred of you there in Takana, Guatemala come uh, uh, the uh, year 2021. And God's gonna do a great and neat work there. If your doctor will allow you to go, please uh, start saving your pennies now and uh, we're gonna plant a church there that's going to send missionaries. Well, let me invite your attention to um, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, and this morning, I want to address the subject, uh, Christmas with Perfection, or the subtitle is Christmas with Mary's Little Lamb. Uh, and I want you to take careful note of that because in the biblical text, the notion of the lamb is elevated and exalted, and it is a powerful Christmas theme and should be and always should be uh, as we uh, think about this marvelous season and the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me uh, take a moment to do a little house business here. Is my lapel mic working at all? Is it on? No? All right. Thank you for that clear answer. More clear than what I can speak this morning. Good, I'll stay behind the pulpit. Uh, usually I'm a bit too restless uh, to uh, do that, but uh, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, it's important that we reemphasize biblical themes during high cultural seasons uh, like this. Uh, it, uh, it's profoundly important, and it reminds me of the little girl who was struggling to learn uh, the chorus, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. And boy, I love singing that. We've sung that in invitations in evangelistic crusades before. She got some of the words confused, though as small children are apt to do, and she sang at the top of her voice, Oh, come, let us ignore him. Oh, come, let us ignore him. And, and in some households, in some hearts, that's precisely what's happening in this season. Um, I, in fact, I've got to be honest with you, and I'm not proud of this, but I grew up uh, before becoming a Christian and until establishing my own house without celebrating Christ at Christmas. My home, there, there was no Bible, there was no Christ, there was no prayer. I don't, I don't think, and when I say there was no Bible, I mean there was no copy of the Bible uh, in my home, and I always felt a bit empty. Now, I like the gifts, but I always felt like there was something more, and the lawn fixtures and nativity scenes captured my attention as a boy, and I always wondered, is there more to that? Well, when I met Christ when I was 16, when I met the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed before the foundation of the world for my sins, that made all the difference. And I've got to tell you, it is a thrill to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, it's not a biblical holiday. Uh, Sunday is, where we celebrate the resurrection. And, uh, but I, I think it's terribly appropriate for us to do that and remind the entire globe Christ is born. Now, this text is also profoundly important uh, and a number of texts are uh, that you have listed on the screen uh, because next Sunday we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper in our service. And it's very, very important that you understand that the Lord's Supper is more than just a sloppy, sentimental time where we get together and share something together. It, it, is, not, it is not mainly horizontal focused. 
It's mainly focused on Christ and what he did for us at the cross. And so this week, I want to ask us to prepare for that time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And anyone who knows Christ as Savior has followed him in biblical baptism and is in a good standing with the local church is invited to participate. And it's extremely important that you observe that because of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and you'll, you'll need to take a look at that. And we've done that a number of times through the years together as we've looked at 1 Corinthians 11. So not everyone is to take the Lord's Supper. Not every Christian is to take the Lord's Supper. Just those that are baptized. Not all the baptized are to take the Lord's Supper. Only those who are in a good standing with a local church. And if that's where your heart is next Sunday, please come. Now, you've got to police yourself. You've got to judge yourself. 1 Corinthians 11 says uh, we don't do that. That's not up to us to do. It is up to you to do that and make sure that your heart is revived and realigned and organized around the will of God and His Word as we look to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're here at Genesis chapter 22, and ever since chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God has made it prominent that uh, a blood sacrifice was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And God is the first one to offer that sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 that became identified with uh, lambs. And the understanding of lambs and sheep and goats and kids, kids, goat kids, the not the human kids, uh, is, is uh, you have to understand uh, that it, the understanding of that in, biblically is so broad that sometimes you could offer a goat in place of a lamb, and there are places where that's appropriate, even on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, which we'll look at. So if you'll open with me to Genesis 22, Exodus 12, Isaiah 53, um, and I didn't spell Isaiah that way. That's not me. That's not me, okay? Indeed. And um, then um, uh, Alpharetta Public Schools. Uh, and then John chapter 1, then, uh, um, then uh, you'll, you'll be there uh, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, this is one of those messages, by the way, where I can tell you to open up somewhere in the Bible and I'll get there eventually, okay? So um, we'll start with Genesis chapter 22. And I want to talk with you about what uh, is progressively unfolded in the Scripture regarding the Lamb of God that would be the sacrifice for human sin. The first thing is this, the lamb provides. Now let's look at the story, Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. And there are an awful lot of comparisons between what takes place here and what would take place with Jesus. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And anyone who's serious about following Christ will be tested. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, that's the first of three responses by Abraham where he says, here I am. And when God speaks to your heart like he will this morning, the best response is, here I am. And then he said in verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son. And that reminds us of John three sixteen, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first mention of the word love in the entire Bible. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. It's a mountain range where near where they build the temple. It was a place where David would accomplish some of his exploits. It's the same mountain range where Jesus would be crucified as well. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take this son of promise through whom the Messiah is going to come and go and offer him as a burnt offering. 
He goes back home and says, I was having my quiet time this morning. And the Lord spoke to my heart. And then he tells her the rest. And she says, you're going to do what? So that's what I imagined happened. Now, the rest of the text doesn't bear it out, but I'm, I'm imagining things here. So verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said to his young men who were accompanying them on the trip, Stay here with the donkeys. Now watch this. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. He didn't say, I will come back to you. He said, we will come back to you. And he wasn't obscuring the reality of the sacrifice of Isaac. Hebrews eleven nineteen, the author there, who I think was Luke, said uh, that Abraham believed that he would actually put a sacrificial knife to the heart of Isaac and God would raise him from the dead. That's what he believed. Because Isaac is the son of promise through whom the Messiah would come eventually. And so he says, we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, just like the crossbeam was laid on Jesus. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, he's not informed Isaac about what he's about to do. Now, Abraham had Isaac born when he was 100 years old. And Isaac is a young man by now. He's in his teens. Isaac could have taken on his daddy easily. And so let's continue reading. He says, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together, and they came to the place in which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. He didn't bind Isaac to the altar because he was stronger. He bound Isaac to the altar because Isaac cooperated. Isaac cooperated. Abraham said to God, here I am. And apparently Isaac said the same thing. Because God's going to provide for himself a burnt offering. So he bound uh, his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And here's the third occurrence. Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have with, not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. A very unusual occurrence. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead in the place of his son. Now, ladies and gentlemen, can you see the remarkable comparison here between Isaac and the Lord Jesus and then, most importantly, this ram whose horns are caught in a thicket that Abraham offers up instead of his son, just like God offered up his son instead of us.
in our place. God will provide his own offering. Now that's the point about the Lamb of God. The first thing we learn was back in Genesis 3 where it would come by blood. But then we learned here in Genesis 22, God himself would provide an offering in our place. The offering had to come from God himself. You know, humanity is incurably religious and we're constantly trying to give things to God to please him, to make things right with God, and it's an impossibility. There is certainly no way we could ever offer to God anything of us that would please him. Oh, that's like being given my soul, the latest model Lexus and giving the person who offered it to us and gave it to us in gratitude a quarter. It simply is not appropriate for the gift that is given. God has got to offer his own sacrifice. And that is the first thing that we learn. And Abraham here is willing to take it. Willing to accept what is taking place here. He's offering his son, his only son. He embraces the ram that is caught in the thicket there by its horns. Abraham is completely open to God, doing precisely what God wants him to do. It reminds me of the missionary, Jim Elliott, who uh, was headed to the mission field and really, uh, in, in some uh, regards, presaged his own death, where he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This life that you now have, you can't keep that. Hey, I, I read some research recently, and do you know? One out of every one person dies. And each one of us has an appointment with God where we'll meet him face to face. Each one of us. You can't keep this life. You will live and exist somewhere in eternity. You will. Every one of us will live somewhere in eternity. You cannot keep this life. Why don't you just give it up now? To gain an eternal life, you can never, ever lose is the promise of God. Well, that's the first thing. Genesis 22. But then I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. And here... God is working with Israel to make permanent what they did in Egypt with the Passover sacrifice. The final plague after God warned Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. They were slaves there and God wanted them for himself to go to the promised land to establish a nation that would bring the Messiah into the world. And Pharaoh resisted. And so God sent plague after plague after plague to get his attention and he wouldn't. He hardened his heart. And in Exodus chapter 12, God said, then what I will do is I will send the final plague and it will break the resistance of Pharaoh. And he'll let you go then. And that was the plague of the death of the firstborn of everything in Egypt. To protect Israel from that, they were to, sla they were to slaughter a lamb, bleed its blood, and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel. Which if you look, if it were to flow that way, it would turn out to be a cross. And that's what they were to do. And any time the angel of death sent by God saw the blood, he would pass over all of that. And the family inside would be rescued. It only applied to those Israelites, but not all of them. It only applied to the Israelites who posted the blood. The blood was their rescue and their salvation. 
from death. Well, God wanted that ceremony and that observance to be memorialized and practiced every year for the rest of Israel's existence. And he makes that in particular in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, we move from the home uh, in Exodus chapter 12 with the Israelites to the tabernacle where the offering is offered there. And he's telling the priest exactly how to offer it. And I want you to look with me in verses 20 through 22. And there's a marvelous sacrificial system here that takes place once a year that's good for about 365 days. And I want you to see what happens in Leviticus 16, verse number 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now he brings two of them to the altar. And look what he does with the two of them. First, in verse 20, he brings the living one, the one that would, uh, he brings the, the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands uh, on the head of the live goat, confess over all, it, all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities by, to an uninhibited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Now in the verses above, he has slaughtered one and laid its blood on the altar for the forgiveness of sins of Israel. And so their guilt before God is removed. But they also need the, uh, some reminder to the, that God has removed their guilt before him and their conscience as well, at least for the next year. And what he does, he says in verses 20 through 22, bring this one and the priest shall place in a representative fashion his hands on the head of this goat and confess all the sins he can think of that Israel has committed. And then someone takes the goat out into the wilderness and it escapes and it lives. Have you ever heard of a scapegoat? This is precisely what we have here with this particular item. And that is what would happen. What God said in Genesis 22 is that the lamb for sacrifice would be provided by God himself. In Leviticus chapter 16, this one would not only cover the sins of Israel with its own blood, at least for a year, but the other would carry the remembrance of them far, far away. God wanted not only for them to be right before him, he wanted their conscience and their mind clean at least for a year. Now Hebrews tells us it couldn't do this permanently. And it could not do a deep work of cleansing of the conscience and the soul at all. Oh no. But at least for a temporary time, this goat would carry the remembrance of their sins out into the wilderness. It would escape and would, would not return any longer. That's what the lamb would do. But there's a third passage I want you to look at, and that's um, Isaiah 53. So the lamb provides. Second, the lamb purges. But here's a third thing in Isaiah 53, and that is the lamb propitiates. Now, that's a $400 college word that's extremely important in the Scripture and in theology. In fact, it's so important we need to learn it. Would you look at your neighbor and say, propitiate? Yeah, propitiate. It could mean we could use the word placate or satisfy. God is a king and a judge with a law and court, a court system and sentences. 
And we sinners have been sentenced to capital punishment and death. That law has got to be satisfied. But God loves us, and he's not satisfied with the whole human race being condemned to death. So what does God do? On one hand, he's holy, and he's exacting, and he's more demanding than you could ever imagine. On the other hand, he's more loving and gracious than you'll ever need. So when love and grace and uh, purity and holiness and justice meet at the center, what happens? What happens? Isaiah 53. Now, the lamb would be provided by God in Genesis 22. The lamb would cover and remove sin and purge Gen uh, Leviticus 16. Look at verses 4 through 7. And I want us to read this, and I want you to see what a preacher sees when he reads a text like this. Okay? We're going to read only verses 4 through 7. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the physical appearance and public reception of Jesus Christ. Great prophecy of Christ eight centuries before he came. But verses 4 through 7 talk about his work on the cross and how he was our substitute. And you'll notice that 11 times we or our is used in this text. We, our. Ten times he and him. And eight times there's the concept of exchange and transfer that is used in verses 4 through 7 alone. So look here carefully. Verses 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, that God judged him. That's what we thought of him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, verse 6 continues this. It's the only verse in the Bible that begins and ends with the same word. And the meaning of the first word governs the meaning of the second use of the word in verse 6. Look here. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All and all. We have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. The Lord laid the on him the iniquity of us all. Then verse 7 identifies him with the lamb who takes the place of other lambs. And he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is, uh, before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I've read shepherds who actually uh, expressed this same thought that as unpleasant it is for a lamb or sheep to be sheared, they're silent and docile when that happens. That's precisely what Jesus did. But the text makes abundantly clear that the lamb is not only from God. The lamb not only covers sin in the Old Testament and removes its memory from the sinner, but here in the text you'll notice the frequent use of he and him. We are, when we talk about the Lamb of God, we're not merely talking about an animal of that particular species. We're talking about a man. 
a man would come and would bear our sins and sorrows and griefs and God would pour out the chastisement of our peace upon him. Hey, look at verse number 10. This is precisely what happened to this man who's carrying our sins. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, God, has put him to grief. When you, Lord, make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his sand. And, and then verse 11, here's where propitiation comes in. Explicitly. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. There at the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. All my sins on him were laid. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Not in the power of my own virtue, not in the power of my own righteousness, not in the power of my own religious impressiveness, but on him. His power is the only way I can stand right before God. God the Father saw the blood of Christ the virtue of Christ, the excellencies of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, and it satisfied him. He satisfied. And that's precisely why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Prior to his birth, he is spirit. Well, spirits can't die. Spirits do not die. They don't have the capacity to die. But a spirit that inhabits a body, that body can die. Therefore, Jesus took on a body in Bethlehem that he might satisfy and propitiate the law of God. Somebody give him praise. Amen. So the, the lamb would be offered by God himself in Genesis 22. The lamb would cover sin and remove its memory from the people. The lamb would be a man. John chapter 1. Israel is in high expectation of this. John the Baptist has appeared on the scene after 400 years of silence. God has not spoken to Israel through a prophet in four hundred years and John explodes on the scene and he gets attention with an unusual wardrobe and an unusual diet and an unusual posture towards the superficial rigid ungodly religion of religious leaders some far too rigid on one hand, some too compromising on the other hand, and rigid about that as well. And he says things like, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Don't say we're children of Abraham. God can dismiss you and raise up children of Abraham from this stone. Don't even think about it. Don't, don't even go there, John says. And then... Jesus, his relative, appears on the scene. And John gets it for this moment unlike anyone else. He's gathered around him a good number of followers. And then John was baptizing in John 1.28. And the next day, something remarkable happened. The next day, 
In verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that fulfills everything in Genesis 22. Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53. And every, right there in those few words, he summarizes the Old Testament anticipation of the coming Christ. Uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's structured in the Greek text in a way that you can understand it really both ways. That Jesus is a Lamb from God. God provided him, and, and you can translate it also, Jesus is the Lamb who is God. He is the Lamb from God who is God. And John probably means it both ways. He uses double meanings frequently in the Gospel of John. And Jesus appears. And then he takes away. He takes away. He doesn't merely cover sin, leaving it under and beneath. He takes away sin. He takes it away out of the sight of God. He takes it away from the conscience of the people and the confessor and the convert. He, he takes it away from future consideration. He takes it away from the judgment seat uh, and, and the judgment bar of Almighty God. He takes it away. He doesn't merely cover it. And then he takes away the sin. He takes away. He's a man. The lamb is a man. And he takes away the sins of the world. There is no one here, nor has there ever been anyone in history who has failed before God so miserably, who has embarrassed themselves or their families or their spouses to such an extent that God cannot reach into that soul and cleanse them, make them whole and new as if they had never sinned before in all their days. No one. No one. And there's no one that has sunk so deep and so far that God cannot change their heart and soul, take away their sin, and begin to treat them with the love and the affection and the hope and the promise and the inheritance that Jesus Christ himself will receive. He lifts us up. All because of the Lamb of God. Well, preacher, you're reading a lot in just those few words. Oh, I'm not making this up. Look with me. A few pages over in John 6.53. You remember the Passover lamb. Well, Jesus engages in some rabbinic hyperbole. He overstates the case. If my grandmother were around here in Athens this week, she would have said, it has been raining so much, it's rained cats and dogs. Have you ever said that? Have you... Ever heard that? It's raining so much, it's raining everything. The clouds are even throwing cats and dogs at us. That's how bad the rain is. Well, Jesus engages in that. He overstates the point, makes it vivid, almost crushing, to make a point in verse number 53. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, or if I can use a Mills paraphrase, emphatically, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, what does he mean? 
well, he's not with us in the flesh. How can you eat his flesh and drink his blood? He's referring back to the slaughter of the lamb in Exodus 12 and what Israel would do with Leviticus 16. And he's saying, it is possible when you confess and repent and get right with me, it's possible for you to be as close to me as you are your food. It's, as po- it's, it's possible for you to be as close to me as you are this meal you eat during the Passover supper with your family. That's how close I will let you get to me if you'll repent and trust me. He goes on. He hearkens back to Genesis 22 with Abraham in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 56. And he makes a very strong statement of his deity. He's as much God as if he were not man at all. Of course, he's as much man as if he were not God at all. He's not half man, half God, all God and no man, all man and no God. He's God man, the only 200% being ever to walk the earth. And then in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He's speaking to Jewish leaders. Your father, centuries ago, about 14 centuries before they're talking here, rejoiced because he saw my day. Well, you can understand their incredulity in the next verse. Then the Jews said to him, well, you're not 50. How can you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, most assuredly, emphatically, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I existed before Abraham. I'm Abraham's creator. He rejoiced to see my, that day. Hey, when do you think Abraham rejoiced to see that day, the day of Jesus Christ? Well, the day he discovered he did not have to sacrifice his son. Instead, he found a substitute ram in the thicket. That's the day Abraham rejoiced to see. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, which is a pre-incarnate, before birth, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ with Abraham. Jesus is pointing to himself back in Genesis 22. But turn over a page or so to John chapter 10 and verse number 11. So Jesus is God and he comes from God. He's the lamb provided by God, by his own hand and his father's hand. He also is the one who would remove sin. Well, look at verse number 11 of John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In the place of the sheep. Just as there was a substitute in Isaiah 53 who would be a man, this is who Jesus is in John chapter 10, verse 11. Look a few verses later in verse number 18. Verse 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I've got the power of death and resurrection in my hands. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, my life that is, and I have power to take it again. In other words, it's not Abraham carrying Isaac up 
and making him an offering. It's Jesus volunteering for the mission. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All because God the Son stepped into human flesh in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Remarkable. So look back at John chapter 1. John the Baptist and some of his followers are watching Jesus. John the Baptist has said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two disciples do what I hope you will do today. The two disciples heard him speak and they follow Jesus. Is there any other reasonable response to Jesus Christ besides that? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and they followed him. Would you do that today? We'll give you the opportunity in just a moment when we start singing. Why don't you open up your heart to Christ and say yes to him? That's the best thing in the world to do on this day. Reminds me of a uh, post office in California where there was a line backed up and just one employee behind the counter. And she was getting frazzled and frustrated. And one man sensed that in the line. And he was a little impatient, but at the same time trying to help. He said, hey, is there anything we can do to help you? And she said, go home. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. Jesus didn't tell them to go home. He says, Come. And that's what he says to you today. Come. Everything needed to make you right with God and make things right with God on your behalf is done with God. The only thing that needs to happen today is that you repent and place faith in Christ. The Bible says, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. The Bible also says, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and trust Christ. And this season, I'm very busy. I'm here, there, and yawn, doing a lot of Christmas shopping. I finally finished that. Now I can shop for gifts for my family. <laughs> but I don't know if, if it's this way with you, but getting frazzled with all the travel and all, I leave the house and remember as I'm leaving that I forgot the list at the house or forgot something at the house. And I am forever leaving and coming back in a busy season. Do you ever do that? Whenever you do that, you remember that you forgot something and you turn around, you're repenting. You realize you've left something. You realize you need something and you go back and get it. This morning, you need to repent for the same reason. You're, you're without Christ. You're without God in the world. But he's willing to come into your life through Jesus Christ. And, and then... You've got to have faith and trust. You've done that today with anything that you've eaten, with anything you've drunk. You've sat on these pews that have been here for 50 years. You're sitting on something that's been here 50 years as of next August, and you trusted it to hold up your weight. 
That's what God is wanting you to do with Jesus Christ, to put your entire weight on him. And if you'll do that today, we would love to help you. Others of you have done that, but you need to follow Christ in baptism. During this time, why don't you come as well? Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. We invite you to come. Others of you, God's put on your heart ministry or missionary service, and God is calling you. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want to pray for you that God will help you, and then we're going to sing.